Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Well, some of you may have recognized the melody through those sweet, silky strummings of the guitars there. Uh, That was a pretty famous uh, hymn called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the reason what Jake and I kind of uh, centered on that is because there's one particular line out of all the awesome lyrics in that that always kind of captures me and it relates particularly to today. And that, that is the line, Jesus sought me when a stranger. That always captures me. Jesus sought me when a, str- when a stranger. Uh, we're in a series that we just started last week called Real Love. We began by looking at how true love, the, the, the kind of love that God exhibits, uh, see, uh, sees us, sees us where we are. You know, what's interesting about humanity, probably the best of us, we would have to admit the fact that we often love because, right? We love because of some traits and attributes and charm and other things that tend to draw us. But it truly is that God and God alone is the one who often and, and loves us despite despite sometimes that there are some issues and sins and things that he needs to deal with. And yet, despite that, he radically loves us far beyond any love we can even experience for each other. And so that's what we were talking about last week, that real love sees us in all of what we are, including the things that need to be changed and transformed and corrected. But through it all, God sees us as a masterpiece that he wants to make us the way in which he intended us to be. And so this week, we're going to continue on with part two, which is real love seeks. So we have real love sees and real love seeks. So one little letter there can make a big difference, of course. Last time we talked about a couple of moments, a couple of encounters that Jesus had with two individuals, two men in which this kind of showed the characteristic of of the love of God and how he sees us as we are. And this week we want to look at two other encounters, two uh, women that he comes across here and what we might learn about this. Uh, The first encounter begins in Matthew chapter 15, where we see Jesus, uh, we're told that he is leaving that place. That's how the scripture starts, leaving that place. Well, what does that mean? Where was he leaving? It's always important that we, we look at things in the context in which they're in. And we see that what he had just done is left, he's leaving an area known as Jerusalem. We looked at that last week. Jerusalem is the center area of the people of God. It's the place in which the people, uh, they identify with each other, with their customs, with their traditions, with their faith and their faith practices in God. It's a comfortable place for the people of God. And yet Jesus is leaving there. Part of the reason he's leaving there is because he's kind of got a little stench in his nostrils, and that's the stench of some self-righteousness. And that happens sometimes, especially among the people of God that can be there. And he was dealing with that. And so he, in this moment, is leaving, and we're told that he withdraws to another region called the region of Tyre and Sidon. 
Now let's take a look at the map, just like we did last week. When you look at this, this is a map of, you can see down at the bottom, we have kind of circled in blue uh, Jericho. Last week, that was one of the areas we saw Jesus go, and that's near Jerusalem, where he's leaving. And then, of course, the area of the Gerasenes, which was another encounter we looked at. Well, now where he's going is in that upper part of the map. You see where that red circle is around two cities, Tyre and Sidon. That is where he's going to. It's not a short distance, by the way. I know on the map we look like it's not that far. It's about five inches. It's a little further than that for Jesus, okay? And remember, they didn't have Uber in these days, all right? And so we'll talk about how far a little bit later. But he's going up into that region, and the region is known, if you notice, there's a word circled there. It's the region of Phoenicia. Now, that's important. Keep in mind two things, Sidon and Phoenicia. That is the area that he is going to. Jesus had mentioned this area a couple times, actually, when he was calling out, at times, the hypocrisy of some of his own people. Uh, but we won't go into those scriptures right now. The important thing is now he's going to this area. And as he arrives there, we're told, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. Now, you might know of the Canaanite background. There's a lot of background between the Canaanites and the Israelites, and most of it is not good. In fact, pretty much all of it is not good. But we're going to go into that a little bit deeper in a moment. So she comes to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Well, there we have it again. If you remember last week, we looked at somebody who was dealing with the same kind of spiritual oppression and difficulty. And let me just say right up front, I, I don't know about you, but I have heard from a number of people through the years. I've experienced this myself. You ever feel like um, you're, you're walking through seasons more frequently than you'd like to? in which there seems to be kind of an, a, a spiritual weight. There might be spiritual roadblocks, almost as if there is an adversary nipping at the heels all the time. I've heard from many times people through the years, you know, the enemy just seems to be coming after us lately. There's just so many things we're walking through. It's one thing after the other. The truth is there is an adversary out there that's seeking to, to, to trip us up just like this woman is seeing. But one thing we need to remember in this moment is even when these things are happening, the Lord is there. He was there. He showed up. He was present and ready to deal with the situation. And let's remember that that, that, that never the enemy is at work, that the Lord isn't also available. And we want to, don't want to make the mistake, as C.S. Lewis said a long time ago, you know, we don't want to ignore that the spiritual adversary is at work, but we also don't want to give him too much attention either. What we want to do is put our attention on the Lord who's present. So he's there with this woman, and she is calling out to him, and she calls him by a unique title, Son of David. That title is a recognition, as though she's probably heard about him, that this is the one that the Israelites, the people of God, were waiting for, this coming Messiah. She was recognizing that. Ironically, the people Jesus just left in Jerusalem, many of them weren't recognizing that. And yet this woman recognizes that of him and attributes that to him. And she asks for mercy. This is her moment. You know, what, what are the things in life that fill you and complete you? Here is a woman now. Jesus is in her territory. I mean, she's around her peeps. She's probably, she knows her tribe in that area. It's familiar to her. It's comfortable. She might even be popular but did that fill her up? Did that complete her life? Or was there a, a serious emptiness there, something in which she wasn't whole, involving her own daughter? These things, all, they, don't add, they don't add up to all the answers in life, do they? 
And this is where she found herself. So she's, she's crying out to Jesus. And interestingly, Jesus has a different response here. He, he said, we are told that Jesus did not answer a word. Hmm. And then we find out the disciples came to him and urged him, saying, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus was quiet. He waited, and they spoke first, and they spoke what they were thinking. And that's significant. You ever do something, maybe it's with kids, sometimes we do this with each other as adults, but you ever in a conversation with somebody, it's particularly right now, I'm thinking of my kids, sometimes they come to me, they make a request, they want something, they're interested in something, and sometimes you just wait. And you wait to hear more about what's behind the request. And you start to find out that there's, there's more driving the request than maybe just the request itself. You know what I'm talking about? And sometimes by getting that additional content, you really understand what's going on in the heart of the individual. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good what's going on there. And we have to deal with it in different ways. I think we have a moment like that here. Jesus is waiting to see what their response would be. And they put their heart, as it were, on the table. And their attitude was one of rejection with this woman. Send her away. In fact, I would even say they were saying this. Send this dog away. I'll explain that in a minute, why I'm using that particular word, because we'll see it. So they just wanted to get rid of her. She was, she's just barking and annoying them. Send her away. Now remember the map we looked at. Okay, We looked at that he was in an area of Sidon, was one of the was cities there, and the area is known as Phoenicia, or that was at least its history and background. There was a particular history here that Jesus' closest followers were responding to that involved a lot of pain and bitterness that they were thrusting into this moment at the, at the feet of this woman. And we see this in 1 Kings in the Old Testament. We see this history in which these people in the area Jesus is in have a particular uh, uh, element of, of, of bitterness and pain that is carried by his people, the Israelites. And this is what we see. King Ahab, that was the king of the Israelites at the time, married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the who? Sidonians. Sidon. And began to serve Baal. That was, remember last time we talked about the God who the Canaanites, like these people, the Sidonians were Canaanites. They began to serve Baal who, among other things, uh, they would sacrifice children through the fire and kill children for this God. So the people began to do that after Jezebel came into the picture. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, we see, so now she's slaying the prophets, Obadiah, possibly the Obadiah who later wrote the prophetic book that we have in the Bible, possibly, not likely, but not sure, but possibly. Obadiah take, took 100 prophets and hid them in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. So he's hiding them away. So here we have Jezebel, this daughter of a king of Sidon. In other words, she was a Phoenician princess, marries in to the Israelites, and what do we get as a result of this? Genocide. Betrayal, murdering their people, supporting Baal, so children are going to be sacrificed in the fire, killing of the prophets of God. At one point, we even see one of the greatest prophets, Elijah, is on the run from this woman who literally says, in the name of the gods, I'm going to kill you before the day's over. You're done. I'm, I'm going to get you. This is the horrible history that the people had in this area and the remembrance they had of this area. And so they were dwelling on it. 
I do find it funny how there may be a lot of wrongs in the past to right sometimes, but when all we do is dwell as, as groups and stuff on the, on the pain of history, we never find a way forward. It's incredibly difficult to move beyond that and figure out a way to come forward. This is the world they were living in. Nothing new under the sun, right? And so they were like, send her away, get rid of her. And if Jesus agreed with them, I think he would have immediately left. That would have been the end of the story. But notice, he's still there, right? And so he, he answers and, and almost reflects what they're saying. He says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. I, I was sent only to the Israelites. This seems like it's going off track, doesn't it? Jesus, which direction are you going here? I don't get this. But remember, he's still there. And he came all the way there. Now, he did have a priority. We know this. There was a prophetic priority that he had to witness to the Israelite people first concerning who he was. So there was some truth in that. But if that was the extent of his ministry and he knew it, I don't think we would have found him in the region of Tyre and Sidon at this moment. So something more is happening. And so as he kind of mirrors this disciple's lack of concern for her, it goes further. She comes back and she kneels before him. Lord, help me, she said. A humbling move and a move again that recognizes and puts faith and trust in his lordship and his authority. And then we get one of the most shocking statements ever to come off the lips of Jesus. He said to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. There's that word. Now it really seems like we're going far afield, aren't we? What did Jesus say? What does he mean? And it's dangerous that we just jump to conclusions on this. In fact, I heard a, a reverend recently who taught, based on this verse, because they went no further and didn't do any exploration beyond just what it was said, who was teaching that their view of this and what it was telling us is that, quote, Jesus was racist, and the woman here used her boldness to speak truth to power, and it made Jesus repent of his racism. Jesus is human and had prejudices and biases, and when confronted with it, he was willing to do the work, and this woman was willing to stand up and speak the truth. So apparently, according to this person, if they're correct, we are the way, the truth, and the life, and it's Jesus that is the one that needs correcting. Am I getting that right? That's a bit of a problem if we follow that line of thinking and so this is what happens when we, we kind of take a, a consistent, responsible, systematic way of treating Scripture and we kind of toss it in the dustbin in favor of our own preconceived ideas or ideologies or things that we kind of lay on the Scripture as a filter. And we all can be guilty of this. We have to be careful that we don't just bring an idea to the Bible that we think we see and map it there or find it there because that can lead us really far astray. I just don't know how you turn to this person as a savior of any kind if that's true of who this is. And yet, what was ignored, of course, in that is that we see many times in Scripture from God asking Cain, where's your brother? You know, to God saying to his disciples, uh, who do you say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? God many times will put statements or questions out there in which he is waiting and testing us and waiting to see what we will do in response. And then many times, based on our response to him, he will change direction and respond to that. This is how God helps us to shape and grow and understand and learn. And I think we have a moment like that here. 
because we can, we've got to expand on this, obviously. I've got to explain a little bit more about what we do think is happening here. Well, again, remember the history. Sidon, Phoenicia, Jezebel. And then we get this statement that Jesus was mentioning, which happens to be a common statement that was meant in those days, that was said by the Israelites when they talked about Canaanites, specifically from this region. They would call them dogs. They viewed them in a low view. Why? Well, think about Jezebel. Think about that history and that bitterness That's, that brought their view of them to a certain level. They no longer even saw them as equal worth to humanity even because they were carrying that pain and bitterness and was limiting the way in which they could see them. In fact, how did Jezebel die? We don't have time to go to the scripture, but if you look back, you'll see that when finally justice came to her and all this damage and destruction she was doing came to an end, do you know how, what happened to her when she died? Her body was eaten by dogs. This was in the background. This was in their mind and in view as they were thinking of this woman. And so Jesus is here entering this moment. He's pulling up all of that past, all of that pain, all of those preconceptions of the individual before them. And, you know, at this point, the disciples might have felt totally vindicated. They probably were like, all right, Jesus, you're getting it too. High five. So now what are we doing here? Let's, let's blow town. Let's blow this popsicle stand and leave this, you know, stop this lady's barking, right? But that's not what happened because Jesus is still there. And she responds to them. She says, yes, it is, Lord. It's, it's, yes, you can give me this blessing I'm asking for. She said, even the dogs eat crumbs from their master's tables. What she's saying there is she's like, you know, if, if a mere human master will give some food, from, some crumbs from his table with his dog, how much more will God share with the whole world his blessings, whether or not they're Israelites, shouldn't, shouldn't matter, Right? And then Jesus responds to her, woman, you have great faith. In fact, that doesn't really do it justice. The word there is not just woman, it's oh woman. You might even say dear woman, you have great faith. Those words great faith, the original words are literally megaspistes. It means mega faith, like a megaphone broadcast something loud, you have faith that just broadcasts volumes, dear woman. He says your request is granted and her daughter was healed in that very moment. Do you know Jesus never, that, that phrase, great faith, he never says to anyone else. He recognized there were other Gentiles and other non-Israelites who had faith and he recognized their faith, but he never said that phrase to anyone but this woman. I think he's changing the script in front of those who were with him. You see, because all they saw was just like the religious leaders that he had left in Jerusalem, who never recognized him, by the way, as the son of David, never turned to him for help and healing. And he leaves them and Jesus goes 120 miles to find this woman. That's how far he traveled from Jerusalem. 120 miles out of the familiar, into this place to meet this one woman. We're never reported that he does anything else there. He went for her. And so while this would have been surprising to any other human being, because there's such limits to our love, so many ways in which we filter our affection and our care and what we're willing to do, 
Jesus goes all the way here because he understands that these lines don't divide things in God's eyes. In fact, Jesus had Canaanite blood in his ancestry. One of his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers was a woman named Rahab. And she was not an Israelite. She was a Canaanite. And God, in his wisdom, saw fit to bring that into his own bloodline so that Jesus wouldn't just have one particular group of people in mind, but he would be a Messiah for all people. And he would seek all people. I don't know about you, but this lady was completely judged because of her background. In many ways, it's something she didn't really have anything that she could do about. Perhaps we have things in our background that we're ashamed of. Perhaps it's something we couldn't do anything about. Perhaps it's something we could, and we did do something about. Nevertheless, it's still shame in that background. And perhaps we feel like we're that one person that God would never spend the time to take a second look at. We feel a little bit like a dog. That's not who we are, not to Jesus. Real love seeks us out. Jesus goes on and and he has another encounter. This encounter actually is earlier than the one that we just saw. We see this in the Gospel of John. It really captures this this encounter and even more. We find out in John chapter 4 that Jesus, again, left Judea, and he went once more back to Galilee. We'll see where that is in a minute. And he had to go through Samaria. Let's take a look at that. So again, on the map, you see that Judea is that portion in the south, and Galilee is up in the north, and many of the Israelites, Israelites lived in, in both of those areas. But we're told in, the, in this text that he went through that middle one that's circled with in red there called Samaria. Now that's important. Keep that in mind. I want you also to keep in mind at the very bottom of that map, you'll see something circled that says Moab. That was another area. The Moabites lived there, ancient Moab. So just keep that in the, in the back of your mind for now. But you'll see another circle at the very top next to the Phoenician one that circles Syro. Syro, or Syria, we often call those areas today, actually come from another word. They come from a word, Assyria. And Assyria had another particular history with the Israelites and the people of God. And again, it was one of great pain and bitterness. It dashed the hopes of the people and their nation and their devotion to their God. Because many, many centuries before, centuries before, Assyria came in and they were the Israel's enemy and a destroyer of Israel. They, in fact, came in from the north there and they swept in back in the time when there was a whole kingdom there. It was many centuries before this. And they completely decimated the people in the north. Ten of the tribes, remember when we studied in, in, in Genesis and we talked about the 12 children of Jacob? Ten of those children, ten of their tribes were living up in that northern area and they swept those people off into chains and they swept them off into destruction and annihilation. In fact, to this day, there's a famous phrase that you might have heard at times, the ten lost tribes of Israel. If you've ever heard that, that's what it means. Ten of those tribes completely gone, just taken away. Although the Assyrians didn't take every last person away. They left many of them in that area, and they came in, and they intermarried with them, and they corrupted their practices of devotion to God purposely. 
And they changed that whole people group. And as they intermarried and intermixed with them and, and, and perverted, as it were, those, those practices of devotion to God, they became known as the Samaritans. Like the person Jesus is about to encounter in Samaria. And so there was a big divide between the Israelites and these Samaritans. The Samaritans had a, a different place of worship. They believed in worshiping on a mountain called Gerizim. The Israelites worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. They, they had a different set of scriptures. They rejected the, the Psalms and some of the writings of the prophets. And it was, it was so bad, at one point they even built a temple on Mount Gerizim and the Israelites came in and destroyed it because they saw it, again, as a corruption and a perversion of the temple in Jerusalem. And so there was a lot of bad blood between these people. Hatfields and McCoys had nothing on these people. And yet Jesus comes here to this place. And we read, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. I love the name of that town, so I'm going to say it again. He came to a town called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Uh, again, back in the story of Genesis, you saw Jacob in his travels, and you'll see this in chapter 33, he goes and he lives in a town that actually is right in this area called Shechem. And he, he bunkered down there many centuries before, and he had flocks and sheep. And guess what? When you have flocks and sheep and you have to water them, what do you do? You build a well. And so very likely, Jacob built a well in this area that was Jacob's well that we're at right now in this story. We're actually even told, it's very interesting, because that well is there today. If you go into that area of Israel, you can see that well. There's a church right there. And the well we're told in this story, we can't focus on it today, but at one point, the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets uh, says that the well is deep. Well, that well today, if you went and visited it in Israel, you would find out that well is 152 feet deep. Very deep well, especially for those days. And so that well still sits there today. Jesus sits down by the well, and it was about noon. So the place is not only significant in the history, but the time is also very significant. So hold on to that. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, Wait a minute, you're, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? As the Bible tells us here, for Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Now we know why. We know the background and the history. It's always good when we're studying scripture to take the time to plumb the depths a little. Because as we learn some of the background and some of the things, and we don't just read through the verses, it, it enriches our understanding. It, we draw more out of it. So now we know this whole backdrop as these two people meet in this moment. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this is such a beautiful illustration. Jesus knows why she's there. He knows the trip she's got to make with these giant jugs either on her head or carrying them by a pole. It's not easy to do. Fill them up, take them back home. And, and, he's, and he's drawing upon that to let her know that he knows there's something more thirsty in her soul other than water. And this catches her attention. And the reason it does is what we're about to see. Remember the time of day that they're there. 
And so the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. See, she's still thinking about the natural part, right? Just, I just don't want to be thirsty anymore. I don't want to make this trip anymore. It's tiring. There's a lot of background. So just give it to me so I don't have to do this anymore. And he says to her, which is interesting how God often does this. You know, he, he doesn't just respond to what we want. He's, he's always looking because he sees us and love sees us and he knows the things that need to be changed. He knows the corrections that need to happen in the soul because he is the artist and we are the masterpiece. And yet he knows where the errors have crept in like we talked about last week. And so he goes there and he says, well, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Now, when he hits her with this, this is literally a ton of bricks. Probably weighs more than all the stones that make up this well 152 feet down. Today, we don't probably see that as much anymore. In the culture, we look at that and say, what's the big deal? We need to remember that God doesn't change no matter what our culture says. And to God, marriage is a sacred thing. And it's meant to be a covenant between two people that's preserved. And yet Jesus knew this was not her history. For whatever reason, those had gone astray. And the one she has right now is not even a covenant between the two of them. And she knows that that's something of sin before God. God is not going to change with the times. That's not his job. It's his role to tell us how we need to change to fit in with his plan and his design. And that's never going to change. And that's what he brings up here. But notice, though, that he brings so much more. Because this, there's a reason why this woman was there at noon. Because all she had ever probably gotten from this culture, I'm sure she would have been condemned for this very thing that Jesus pointed out among her people. And that's why she came at noon. Because everybody else would come during the morning or the evening when the day wasn't so hot. You never came in the middle of the day. It was way too hot to draw water. You're going to expend more in sweat getting there and back than you would gaining by the water there. And yet that was the risk she would have to take because better that pain than have to deal every day with people who all they would ever do is point out her limitations, her challenges, and her failures without any opportunity to ever get any better. And that's, that was her life. So it wasn't just her past circumstances as a Samaritan that she felt in the moment right now that condemned her, but now it's also her present circumstances and failures that she's carrying in every day of her life. And Jesus meets her there and challenges her in this. It's interesting to me in the moment that she would probably be held to all of that, but nobody ever probably pointed out that Jacob himself had four wives and that was not the will of the Lord. Yeah, we tend to, we're selective in our thinking sometimes and in our application of justice. But God is not. He knows it all. And he holds us all to the same things. And yet that's not why Jesus is ultimately there. It doesn't end there with him. Because he radically loves us. And I think what he's trying to point out to this lady is that she has been trying to fill herself with this water and to remain hydrated, as it were, when really that was never the problem. And what she was learning from Jesus and was about to learn and, his, and, and, and learn through his words of living water that she now thirsted for 
was that no matter how much we try to consume things to fill the hunger and the thirst inside, all of our appetites were never filled. Doesn't matter how much we consume. Because the answer to fill our soul was never to consume. The answer to fill our soul is that we need to be consumed by the love of God. And that's what Jesus was there to show this woman. So she realizes he's a prophet. She, she begins to ask him important questions of faith like, hey, should I worship on this mountain like the Samaritans believe or, or, or should I come to the temple? Just tell me. I want to know where God is because I want to do it right now. I, I can feel the change coming with you and I just want to do this. So where do I go? And of course he hits her with this beautiful thing saying, no, it's not about where to go to worship God. It's about how you worship God. That's what's important. It's not really about where. Where, where do you go? What church do you go to that you're guaranteed to meet with God? There is none. Church buildings don't define that. Wares don't define that. Mountains, temples, rock point, it doesn't matter. In fact, there's a a writing that kind of captures this idea. Imagine a church like this. Cross adorned, steeple high, pews and doors, doors and pulpit shine. People come, fill the chairs, service time. God's not there. Walls and floors, ties and shirts, songs and sermons aren't the church. Form and functions, empty noise without him to fill the void. Christ alone in humble hearts is the church that God imparts. It's never about where, it's about who. Who is filling each person? Who is going to fill this woman's thirsty soul? And so she realizes this, and and there's, of course, nothing wrong with gathering, but it's when we get out of balance with that and we lose the who that we become empty. Didn't matter how many times she went to that mountain, she was empty. And so now the woman, perceiving that he is this answer, she says, you know, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And do you know that he never, ever reveals himself this directly as the Messiah to anyone else in Scripture but this woman. It's the clearest, most unambiguous, most direct statement of, of his messiahship. And he did it for her. Just then the disciples return and they're surprised to find him talking with a woman, but I love this moment. This is earlier, remember, so they're not bold enough yet to do what they did with the other. Send her away. They haven't gained that kind of boldness. So we, we see no one asks, what do you want or why are you talking? They just shut up. And they, they watch the scene. It's kind of funny how um, we get a little bit more bold as we get stronger in our faith, don't we? As we grow and we move on, then we become a little bit more of a know-it-all. That's always a risk. And it's important that we remember that God said and Jesus said, it's those like little children are the ones that will enter his kingdom. And the story ends with her saying, then leaving her water jar. You see, the water means nothing now. That's what wasn't what she was thirsty for. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And when the Samaritans came to him, notice, now they're listening to her. This broken vessel, this one that had no credibility, something has changed. And suddenly her voice is bringing living water and carrying that water to them. The ones who never would go with her to the well. 
And when they came, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers, and they said to the woman, we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Despite her past, despite her present, and all the failure that was in it, she was the one that brought the living water to them. And they recognized something so important. He wasn't just the savior of the Israelites or the savior of the Samaritans or the savior of the smart people or the savior of the people who got it all together or the savior of the people who, 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 who serve in church and, and worship in church and, and speak or, or sing or tithe or, or anything else, any other label we want to put on it. No, he was the savior of the world. In fact, again, Jesus here reached out to this woman because he had a connection far more than his disciples understood at first. Remember how we saw Moab on that map? Many centuries before, as Assyria went in to destroy his people, the Israelites, Moab sent people in with their army. Moab began to partner with them. And so Moab was a part of all this pain in this past. And yet Jesus had Moabite blood. One of his great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers was a woman named Ruth, and she was a Moabite. And so God knows he's not just here for certain classes of people or people with perfect pasts or people with perfect presence. He's here as the Savior of the world. I love the one statement because it's so easy to miss. We were told in John 4, verse 4, not that he went through Samaria, no, we were told he had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Many times they would go around Samaria on the other side of the Jordan because they dreaded the area so much. That's what his people would do. But he had to go through Samaria. Why? To meet with this one woman. Because love seeks. And in that way, the Phoenician woman, and especially this woman at the well, their story is their story, but their story is our story. It's our story. Near Syker town lies an old stone well and a story or two that it might tell of a shepherd boy or a Bedouin who stopped there or a lone woman who came at noon to draw a drink and met a man who made her think. He stopped to rest when she was weary, or he to drink when she was thirsty. The love she sought was found in him. The God she thought was on a mountain was with her now, life-giving water. At Jacob's well, she found the Savior. And the story how she was made well is the story now we all will tell. I don't know if you carry the ghosts of your past and feel like a son or daughter of Jezebel, or you carry your present weight of a, a dozen or a thousand sins that make you feel you're, you're not worthy of the eyes of the Lord to even look upon you like the Samaritan woman. Either way, please know this. He seeks you. He seeks us every day. He's the hound of heaven, as one writer put it. He will not stop until he redeems us by his love and he transforms us by his grace if we will just humbly 
turn to him in those things. Don't let ever, ever let any demon drive that out of you, any lie, any voice. Real love seeks the one it loves. Father, we thank you, God, that you sent your son here, the savior of the world, to redeem us and set us free. And whatever that means for each and every one of us today, I pray we can cast, whether it be pain on you, struggle and challenge, sin, our past, whatever it is that weighs us down right now and makes us less than what you intended for us to be, I pray that we would drop that and turn to you, God, and fall, as it were, into your arms. You know how to make us what you intended us to be. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen.